bees. But around the spring of every year, we see bees going to work. Uh, they're going to work as we see them move from flower to flower, and you know what they're up to. You understand this. They are seeking to collect their primary food source, their primary source of protein, which is pollen. In some sense, bees work for very practical purposes. They need this pollen to feed themselves, their young, and the colony. So there definitely is a very pragmatic consumer survival purpose beyond, uh, behind their work. And yet there's something more that you and I understand as it relates to their work. You and I understand that most flowers are able to self-pollinate, but some can't. And so to these flowers that can't self-pollinate, as these bees are interacting with them, inadvertently they leave the residue from pollen collected from other flowers onto now these new flowers that cannot self-pollinate. Anyone will tell you that bees are critical to the ecosystem. Take them away, we're in great trouble. Bees are essential in that their work is not ultimately about themselves. But their work literally causes other flowers in our environment to flourish. Today I want to talk about work. In fact, it is the first of a six-week series that we're going to talk about. That has to do with, again, us standing at the intersection between faith and work. I don't care who you are in this room, God hasn't ultimately called you to just make money. He doesn't just want you to, here it is, he doesn't just want you to have a job, he wants you to have a vocation. There's a difference. Vocation is from the Latin word vocatio, and that Latin word literally means calling. Problem with so many people in our world today is they have jobs, they just don't have callings. And God has created you for a vocation. In fact, I've got three teenage sons, and they'll tell you right now, I've been in their ear since the time they were little, and I just said, look, here's the three big questions of your life, at least the first two for sure, but probably the third one. The three big questions of everyone's life is, who is your master? Number two, what is your mission? Number three, who is your mate? If you check those boxes well, especially the first two, not, not everybody will be called to get married. I understand that. But for sure, everyone right now, you have a master. Someone is calling the shots in your life right now. Right now. Could be you. You may be your own master. Something tells me that ain't working out too well. Maybe you're in a relationship where that person you're in relationship with is kind of calling the shots in your life, that don't work well either. Ultimately, we were created to have a relationship with our master who is at the same time our maker. But secondly, the big question that this series is going to focus on is what is our mission and how to steward that well? And I want to dig into this. Now, I, I want to mess this up, and Gary kind of gave us a hint as it relates to it. I want to, 
I want to just give you some profoundly bad news for many of you. If you read the Bible, one of the things that will strike you as you just kind of make your way through the scriptures is that um, really in the Bible, the best part, as good as it gets in the Bible, is Genesis chapters 1 through 2. Genesis 1 and 2 Sin hadn't entered into the world. It, we're in a state of utopia. It, it's awesome. It's great. Um, and then chapter 3, on through about Revelation chapter 19 or 20, it just gets funky. And then the last couple chapters of Revelation, praise the Lord, it gets gooder. All right? <laughs> so, so what's interesting is in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, this is the ideal. And what do we see in the ideal Bad news for some of you, work. The Bible opens up with God working. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Six days he creates, and God, wrap your mind around this concept, on the seventh day, takes a day off. <laughs> some of y'all, the most godly thing you can do, literally, is to take a day off. It's called the Sabbath. God takes a day off not because he's tired, he neither slumbers or sleeps. God takes a day off to step away from his work and to just simply enjoy what he has done. Not only that, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, here's the part that's going to mess us up. Look at it with me on the screen. The Lord God, look at it with me, took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden, watch it, to work it. Work it. Work, 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 and keep it. If you're 40 years old and no older, you didn't get that one. All right, that song's so annoying. Anyways, to work it and to keep it. This is before sin enters into the world. So we were, we were created in a perfect scenario to work. So here's the bad news. For some of you all who are retired, enjoy it now because most theologians tell us work will be a part of the new heavens and the new earth. <laughs> so you can retire all you want, shuffleboard your way into the kingdom. You're going to get a job when you get into heaven. <laughs> the difference is there won't be any thorns and thistles. Now, praise the Lord. As a pastor, what that means is there won't be any ornery deacons for me to deal with. <laughs> and everybody will just love me. No complaining emails. It'll be wonderful. All right? Now, why is this? Tim Keller, in his wonderful book, Every Good Endeavor, I highly, highly, highly recommend it. In fact, Pastor Gary, remind me, we need to order a bunch of copies for our resource center. Wonderful, accessible book on, on the themes we're going to be unfolding here. He writes, look at it with me, the fact that God put work in paradise is startling to us because we so often think of work as a necessary evil or even punishment. Yet we do not see, see work brought into our human story after the fall of Adam as part of the resulting brokenness and curse, it is part of the blessedness of the garden of God. Work is as much a basic human need as food, beauty, rest, friendship, prayer, and sexuality. It is not simply medicine, but food for our soul. Without meaningful work, we sense significant inner loss and emptiness. 
people who are cut off from work because of physical or other reasons quickly discover how much they need work to thrive emotionally, physically, and spiritually. Some of you all retired right now, and there's an emptiness you're feeling. My father's talking about retirement, and he doesn't like to use the word retirement. He says, I'm not calling it retirement. I'm calling it realignment. It is a sad American state of affairs to say, I'm just going to kind of work 30 years and then just kick back in a perpetual state of chill and not really use those hours to mentor someone, to pour into someone. We were created for a vocation. This is a part of God's ideal plan for our lives. So I want you to think right now with me. Think Think about some of the most meaningful moments in your life. Think of some of the most meaningful times, not, not all of them. For me, some, for sure not all, but some of my most meaningful moments in my life have been just tied into me walking into, in the vocation that God's given me. So I, I remember um, early 2000s, uh, my wife and I just had this dream of what it would look like, like to plant a multi-ethnic church. I just got tired of, of speaking at all these conferences, and I'm either talking to all black audiences or all white audiences. I'm like, man, when are we going to get together? And this dream gets birthed in me, and then I get this crazy idea. Let me go to the toughest urban center in the country to do a multi-ethnic church. It was Memphis, Tennessee, the place that killed Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. We land with 26 people. Uh, I'm the only piece of chocolate in the room, and um, that's, that's kind of our diversity, and we're pushing hard and praying hard and going hard. It's hard, hard, hard work. By the time we leave, over 2,000 people are there, 65% white, 35% African-American. And I look back, and that was hard work, but it's satisfying because there is a dream God gave me the courage, and I walked in it, and I trusted him for it, and I went after it. Let me just parenthetically come to some of y'all's neighborhoods right now. Some of you all have big dreams, big dreams. There's things that God's put in your heart. And your problem is you don't have the courage to trust him. Without courage, it won't get done. So stop being a Twitter warrior pontificating on all the problems in the world while you're tweeting from your mama's house not doing anything. Even this past week, I landed in Columbia, South Carolina. I had the Southern Baptist Convention in Columbia, South Carolina brought me in. Uh, They wanted me to talk to them about diversity and the church. And I land, and my host picks me up, and he goes, man, I just want to tell you, we're so excited that you're here. We've ordered over 400 copies of your books, and we've given them to the pastors. It's been an incredible blessing. And those books, man, were a lot of hard work, a, a lot of research, a lot of time and effort went into it. But here I am. I spent about 24 hours with these Southern Baptist pastors, primarily white, in, in South Carolina, and they're just asking me question after question of, man, we want to move the ball down the road here, and we want to become diverse and plant multi-ethnic churches, and how does that happen? And when I got on the plane to come back, I'm going, that's what I signed up for. Or even sitting with many of you all in pastoral counseling and just helping you figure things out, and to have some of you double back to me and just say, man... My life is worse since I sat with you. No, I'm just playing. Uh, man. man, thank you. There's been progress here, and we're starting to, not that work becomes an idol, 
But when we see it in its proper place, connected to God, and we're walking in our vocation, there's a sweetness to it. There's a sense of satisfaction to it. So this morning, I want us to look at Daniel. We're going to walk through Daniel chapter 1. As we come to the opening of Daniel chapter 1, scholars tell us this is a a very dark period in the life of the nation of Israel. It's called the Babylonian exile. What that pretty much means is God has been so patient with Israel over centuries and sending the prophets and and warning her of her rebellion, but Israel keeps disobeying and disobeying and disobeying. And finally, God raises up Nebuchadnezzar and the nation of Babylon as an instrument of his judgment to get his people to where they should be. By the way, one of the signs, it's counterintuitive, that we are God's kids is that God sometimes disciplines us. That's what the book of Hebrews chapter 12 says, whom he loves, he disciplines. So if you're here and you say you're a Christian, but nothing really happens when you live outside of the will of God, I'd be kind of frightened about that. So God says, I've got to send Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon to kind of be an instrument of judgment here. So what Nebuchadnezzar does, he, he probably would have been just to at least try to kill all the Jews. He doesn't. He actually takes some of the most elite intellectually and, and the nobility. He takes them and he enrolls them in a three-year training program. Plato actually tells us that the average ages for programs like these was between the ages of 14 and 17. Now this blesses me, Jaden, my kids, others, you need to hear this. In Daniel chapter one, most scholars tell us that Daniel's about 14 years of age. That's why our young people need to understand you're not the church of tomorrow, you're the church of today. So here's Daniel's about 14 years of age. He's in a far off place called Babylon. Again, it's a dark time. Psalm 137 says, when we sat by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. They're extracted from their home. Here's what I love about Daniel. Uh, Daniel hadn't been to seminary. Uh, Daniel's not a full-time preacher. Uh, He's not full-time clergy. Uh, Daniel's not a part of some nonprofit Christian organization. He's not on staff at some church. Uh, When we're going to track with Daniel, we're going to see that that Daniel is a corporate guy uh, working in a very secular society like Babylon. Later on, he'll be a corporate guy working in a secular society like Persia. He's climbing up the corporate ladder. Whenever you see him, Daniel is working hard hard and well, and God is going to use Daniel. I love it. Daniel chapter four. I believe Nebuchadnezzar comes to faith in in Daniel's God because of Daniel's influence on him through work done well and following God in the marketplace. Daniel chapter six, Darius comes to faith in God because of Daniel's influence in the marketplace. Here's Daniel. Daniel works in Babylon. Now, I believe in the sovereignty of God. God wanted us to learn a lot about Babylon because more than just about any other city mentioned in the Bible outside of Jerusalem, Babylon is mentioned. It's mentioned, I believe, some 92 times in the scriptures. So God wants you to know about Babylon. If you read through the New Testament, Babylon is primarily used figuratively to, think, to, to speak of a system that is hostile to the things of God. Uh, to help us with this, I want you to look with me on the screen here at Revelation chapter 17, verses 1 through 6. 
Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers of earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her immorality. And on her forehead was written the name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Now, hear me. This isn't to say that you work with prostitutes or any of that stuff, but it is to say that here he is using Babylon as an image of the world, and that is it is a place that does not believe what you believe. Now, how does Daniel get to Babylon? The theme of Daniel is the sovereignty of God. When we talk about the sovereignty of God, we're talking simply about a God who is in control. The Christian worldview is nothing happens in my life by accident or coincidence, but by God's providence, his sovereignty. We see the sovereignty of God at work. When you look at verse 2 of Daniel chapter 1, look at the first couple of words, and the Lord gave. Look at verse 9. And God gave Daniel favor. Look at verse 17. I think this is a great verse for we parents to pray for our kids. I pray this verse over my kids every week. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding and all visions and dreams. How does Daniel end up in Babylon? It's going to mess you up. This worldly place, how does he end up there? God assigned him. God called him. He ain't there by accident. God placed him in Babylon. You've heard me talk a lot about a guy named William Wilberforce. He's an 18th century, Jesus-loving parliamentarian working over in Britain. Um, He's working in parliament, then he gets saved. After getting saved, he goes, I gotta quit my job because uh, we happen to be running the whole slave trade and that's against the word of God. I can't be in government and oversee this whole thing. So before he quits, he talks to his mentor, his pastor, John Newton. John Newton talks him out of it, says, listen, you don't have to quit your post in Babylon to make a difference. Why don't you leverage your love for Jesus in Babylon to change Babylon? William Wilberforce leaves that meeting and he writes these words in, his, in a journal entry in 1788. Will you look at them with me? He writes, my walk is a public one. My business is in the world. And I must mix in the assemblies of men or quit the post which providence seemed to have assigned me. What does he say here? God's called me here. And he's called me here not just to make a paycheck. He's called me here not to just fatten my IRA accounts. He's called me here to leverage my relationship with God, my skills, my education in such a way that it gives glory to God. 
So this series is not about robbing company time, taking two-hour lunch breaks to do your Bible studies or, you know, to pass out tracts on company time that look like fake $20 bills. That's not what this series is about. What I want you to understand is when you go to work tomorrow, you're going to go to Babylon. God's called you there. God's called you to that cubicle. God's called you to that office. God's called you to that space where it feels like you're the only Christian there. As a student, you're going to walk onto that campus. It's going to feel like Babylon. You're going to sit in classrooms where they're going to distort God's truth. But you need to understand we are called to be in the world, not of the world. It is our call. We're called there. Let me say one more thing before we move on. Listen, I know the Bay Area is tough. The housing here is nuts. The traffic is ridiculous. The pace of life is unbelievable. It's just crazy here. Did I say the housing here is nuts? (laughs) Hear me, hear me. If you came here, if you moved here because you're in love with the idea of California, that's going to wear off quick. (laughs) If you came here because this is going to be a fun place where I can do day trips to Napa, day trips to Monterey, that ain't going to cut it. And you'll be here for a quick season, and it'll be a revolving door, and you'll go somewhere else. But if you came here out of a profound sense of call, I've prayed about it. God's called me here. He's planted me here. He's placed me here. Now the mentality shifts from being a consumer to how can I be a Daniel or a Danielle and leave this place better than what I found it? We need people who are called to the bay who will make a difference. Let's go home on this. How do I reach my Babylon for the glory of God? I'll give you three quick things. Look at verses four and five. How is Daniel able to have such a profound influence on where he's at? Verse four. So let's back it up to verse three. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel. Watch it, both of the royal family and of the nobility. So here we understand Daniel's got royal blood in him, but look at the qualifications for his three-year training program. Youths without blemish of good appearance. we got a little bit of HR problem there. You're hiring them based on looks. And skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, competent to stand in the king's palace and teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. It is an elite program. You had to be intellectually brilliant to get into the program. Here's Daniel. He's dominated his ACTs or he's dominated his SATs. In modern parlance, Daniel could very well have, have been um, a person who was a valedictorian or, or who graduated summa cum laude, unlike me, again, who graduated thank you laude, but that's Daniel. 
He's brilliant. I love this phrase. Not only is he brilliant, but the king was looking for people who could stand in the king's palace. What this means is it's the idea of emotional intelligence. He knows how to handle himself. He's not going to embarrass the king. He can be around the movers and shakers. And when Daniel walks into the room, there's just this sense about him that he's different. How do I reach Babylon? Number one, competency. The number one witness you have is a job done well. If you're lazy, if you're not dependable, if you're constantly being talked about, this is me speaking, not the Lord. Please don't tell nobody you saved. Clean that up a little bit first. If you're the kind of student who's always asking to borrow folks' notes, is this microphone working? Because you in the dorm room playing video games when you should be in class, please don't tell nobody you saved. And for sure, don't tell them you come to abundant life. Now, this is a bit of an overstatement, but what are we getting at here? We don't get to chapter 4 when, when Daniel will lead Nebuchadnezzar to faith in God and Nebuchadnezzar is worshiping God until we see chapter 1 where Daniel does such a great job, the king looks at him and gives him a job and an elite position in his society because he knows this guy kills it. So if you're a plumber, kill it. If you're a landscaper, kill it. If you're in sales, make it your aim to finish at the top. If you're a student, kill it. People won't hear about your Jesus if they see mediocrity in your work. Corey and I have a really good friend of ours. We, we vacation with him every year, he and his wife. Uh, I did his, his wedding years ago. Um, one of the top record producers of all time. When I first met him, he had broken in with the Backstreet Boy. He's just, he's just crazy. He's just done all kinds of stuff. And I remember several years ago, he became the executive music uh, producer on a television show. And we spent a lot of time talking about uh, kind of what his strategy is. And uh, he's like, man, it's just, you just need to know, he didn't say it this way. He goes, I'm walking into Babylon. These people have a completely different agenda. And he says, look, my strategy is I'm not going to really tell anybody I'm a Christian at first. He goes, in Hollywood, Christian artist is kind of an oxymoron. It's code for bad work. Come on now, you kind of know that. If there's a Christian movie out... I'm sorry if Kirk Cameron's here, but listen. It's, it, 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 Christian art has just been synonymous with just mediocre. 
So he says, here's my strategy. I'm going to wow them with my work. So that's what he does. First 12 months, first 18 months, no one knows he's saved. He is absolutely killing it. And this is around about the same time the bottom starts to drop out. He goes, one of our actors dies? Overdoses on drugs? And then he goes, the strangest thing happens. People start filtering into my studio, grieving, and saying to me in, certain, in so many certain words, there's just something different about you. I don't know why I'm talking to you about how I'm feeling about this situation with this young person who just died. All of a sudden, I'm confronted by my own mortality. I'm asking you the deeper questions about life. It, 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 are you a person of faith? He goes, yeah, I happen to be a Christian. It shocks them. He says, but they never would have come into my office if I hadn't first wowed them with my work. How do we reach Babylon? Christians should be killing it at work. But there's a second area. Here's Daniel, 14 years of age, him and his three buddies, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, about 14 years of age, they get enrolled in this very elite program. The idea here is if they graduate from it, they're going to get a job working in government. And the king has one goal. Nebuchadnezzar has a goal is we, we got to deprogram the God out of you. That's his goal. You got too much of this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I got to get that out. So the first thing he does is, I, I got to start educating you in the ways of Babylon. It's interesting. Daniel doesn't put his foot down here. Fine, teach me. I'm fine with that. Why? Because his parents had instilled in him a solid foundation. So he wasn't worried about sitting in some classroom at San Jose State University hearing about evolution or whatever it may be because he had been discipled well before he got there. Secondly, Nebuchadnezzar says, I don't even need to change, I got to change your education, but secondly, I'm going to change your names. Now, that might not sound deep to us, but it's important. Here are the names, Daniel, Michelle, Hananiah, Azariah, the endings to those names, El, Yah, point to the names of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Yah, Yahweh, El, Elohim, God, no, 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 no. I, I got to get those names out the way. I'm going to give you new names, Babylonian names, with the thought being if I call you those names, it'll now get you to think Babylonian. Interesting. Daniel doesn't put his foot down here. Mm, call me whatever you want to call me. My mama named me Clay. I'm going to call you Clay. Whatever. Yeah, just whatever. Not everybody got that. Um, But it's the third thing he does that Daniel, at the age of 14, goes, eh, slow your roll. The king says, I now need to change your diet. The text says that he now gave them food that came from the king's table. Now, this, this doesn't sound like a big deal until you research it and you realize it is a big deal. This food was a big deal for two reasons, really with the same common denominator. One is that food, in all likelihood, scholars tell us, did not comply with the dietary standards God had outlined in the law, which was still binding on Daniel. 
And secondly, that food in all likelihood had been first dedicated to the Babylonian gods with the thought being if you ate it after it was dedicated to the gods, you now were worshiping those gods, which is a violation of the first commandment that says thou shalt have no other gods before me. So Daniel, at the age of 14, man, I, I see him getting the news. We're going to get this food. It doesn't comply with the word of God. 14 years old, he huddles with his friends, 14 years of age, and they're going, man, we, we got to figure out a way around this. And it's a crazy decision because Nebuchadnezzar is, it's a southern idiom. I know it doesn't translate well. His cheese has slid off his cracker. And so to deny this couldn't mean they die. To deny this, at the very least, may mean they don't get promoted. But look at verse 8. At the age of 14, the text says, Daniel resolved in his heart. How do we reach Babylon? Competency. But secondly, it's conviction. Working in Babylon, you will be placed in situations inevitably where you will be tempted to compromise. I got a friend of mine. He owns a lot of hotels. If you've ever been to a hotel, you go to order a movie, you know one of the options, and Satan is so subtle, is adult movies. Think about that, adult movies. It's not for mature people, it's for immature people. My friend tells me, he says, listen, pornography in the hotel industry is huge. He goes, I could make an additional $10,000 a month in each of my hotels per hotel by offering pornography. He says, but my God won't let me. He says, so what's unique about my hotels is you go into one of my hotels, there is no pornography option. And he says, it costs me 120K a year per hotel, but he has resolved in his heart, he drew a line. What's your line? Where have you had to say, I can't go there? And watch it. I love how Daniel deals with it. He doesn't raise a big fuss. He he, he doesn't go about a big protest. He he actually offers a solution. He says to the chief eunuch, hey, hey, can I alert you for a minute? Um, What if, what if we ate nothing but vegetables and drink water? He, he, He didn't even bring up the fact that, hey, I'm a follower of God. I'm not saying he would have been wrong to. He just said, let's try this a different way. What's your line? When was the last time at work you drew a line in the sand? I hate to say this. Y'all know it's true. Not every pastor is up to good. I got, a, I got a pastor colleague of mine. He's been trying to get me to preach at his church. He, we were at a conference together. He said, Loritz, won't you come on down here, man? 
and he pays crazy money. Won't you come down here, man? I'll bless you, man. And, you know, it's literally what he says. We can smoke a little weed and all that other stuff. It's literally what he said to me. I said, Reverend, I don't, I don't roll like that. You got to draw a line. Even among preachers, you got to draw a line. You got to draw a line. What's your line? Let's go home on this. How do I reach Babylon? Competency, conviction, but thirdly, it's our walk with Christ. Here's Daniel. We're going to see it every time we look at Daniel. It's his relationship with God that's the bottom line. Chapter 2, things are going haywire. All of his colleagues and Daniel himself are on the brink of death. And Daniel says, let me just talk to God first. We'll figure this out. Chapter 3, his, his three colleagues, the three Hebrew boys, they refuse to bow to the image. And Nebuchadnezzar calls them in and says, let's try this one more time. And if you don't, what God is there who can deliver you from my hand? They said, what do you need to think about this? We're going with God. And even if he doesn't deliver us, we can't be bought. We don't follow God for the benefits package. Chapter 5, on the eve of Babylon's destruction, and it's all chaos. They're seeing this finger just kind of writing on the wall, and, and they're going, man, am I drinking too much? What's going on here? Someone's got to give us answers. And the queen mother comes in and says, call Daniel, and I love it, bad theology, bad, the, excuse me, bad language, good theology. The, the, the queen mother says, bring Daniel in. A spirit of one of the gods is in him. What is she saying? This guy is different, and what's different about him is supernatural. Daniel chapter 6, they look for dirt on him. They can't find any, but his relationship with God. And what do they catch Daniel doing at his lunch break? He's at home, throws the curtains over, is praying to his God. Why does Daniel's work flourish? What is the secret to him reaching all of these people and having phenomenal influence? His work is tethered to his relationship with God. It's an extension. I love flying kites when I was a kid. We know how kites work. Many of you flew kites too. Kites don't work by letting them autonomously just do them, just kind of letting them go. That's not how kites work. You take the string, and for that kite to soar and flourish way up in the atmosphere, it's got to be tethered to something stable on the ground. If your work is going to flourish the way God intended, you've got to be tied to and tethered to your relationship with God. I was speaking to a group of NFL players not too long ago. I'm looking out, there's Russell Wilson and his wife and a whole bunch of players there. And, and most of them were Christian. And I'm talking to them about these issues of work. And here's what I said to them. I said, listen, guys, you're not a football player who happens to be a Christian. You are a Christian who happens to be a football player. Those are two very different things. And I say to you, you're not a 
teacher who happens to be a Christian, you're a Christian who happens to be a teacher. You're not a plumber who happens to be a Christian, you're a Christian who happens to be a plumber. You're not a computer programmer who happens to be a Christian, you're a Christian who happens to be a computer programmer. Everything I do is an extension of my walk with God. I'm not a Christian on Sunday and then turn that off and step into work and act like a pagan on Monday. My body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which means wherever I go, I bring God with me. So the question is, does your work tell the truth about who God is? So I want us to pray. How are we going to reach Babylon? We're called here. We're called here. Kill it at work. Dominate it at work. Have convictions. Walk with Christ. At the end of each sermon during this series, we want to call just a group of you. Not to embarrass you, but we just want to call a group of you, and we just want to pray over you. Today, if you are in business, and we'll, 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 we'll call the tech people later, but by business we mean if you're an entrepreneur, if you're in sales, if you're in finance, if you're an HR person, if you are in business, we just want to spend some time blessing you and praying for you and sending you out. So I'm going to end this service. I'm going to call the elders and the prayer team people to just come forward and just fan out. At the same time, in just a few moments, I'm going to call those of you in business forward. In just a few moments, I'm going to do that. But some of you are here today, and maybe you are convicted by what you heard, and you just want someone to pray over you. Say, you know what? I could be working better on my job. I could be doing more. I'm kind of seeing some things differently here. Would you just pray over me? Some of you don't know Christ as Lord and Savior. I'm telling you, Jesus makes all the difference in the world. He makes all the difference in the world. Some months ago, I told you I sat with a football player who just signed a contract that's just a little south of $100 million. And when he came here to play against the Raiders, he texted me and says he wanted to meet with me. And I sat down and met with him, and he, he says, Pastor, I'm going crazy because I grew up in the hood, and I signed this contract just south of $100 million, and it's not satisfying me the way I thought. We had a great talk about the one who could, Jesus. Now, I know what y'all are thinking. Y'all are thinking, well, let me just try it. Let me just, let me just try that and reach my own conclusion. I'm telling you, nothing satisfies like Jesus. That we work out of a sense of calling, and that's when, that's when work is the sweetest. And to see this person flourish and walk in this idea that my identity is in Christ, it's not in my job. One blown out knee, if your identity is in being an athlete and you blow out your knee, you're wrecked. But if your, if your identity is in Christ, yeah, I'm sad. But we can keep this thing moving because who I am is in Christ and Christ alone. So come on down. If you're in business, we just want to encourage you. Just, would you just meet me here at the altar right now? If, if, you're, if you're in business, 
if you're an entrepreneur, if you're in sales, uh, if you're an HR person, whatever it may be, we just, we're not here to embarrass you. We, we just, we just want to pray over you. We just want to bless you. Um, as they're coming, if someone's here and you're just going, yeah, I, I'm not necessarily in business. I just, I just, I just want to have someone pray over me because maybe there's a point in the message where you're just going, I'm, I could be doing a whole lot better here. I could be doing a whole lot better here. If you're here and you don't know Christ, we want to encourage you to come as well. We are out of here, but as they're coming, would we all stand? Would we all just stand on our feet? And would you just stretch a hand towards our brothers and sisters who are here? We want to bless them. We want to commission them. I especially want Pastor Gary to pray. He spent 11 years in business before God called him out of that, and he's serving us well here. Pastor Gary, would you pray, and then would you give us the benediction and dismiss us? Father God, we thank you so much for the example that you have given us in your word of Daniel, uh, a man who had courage and conviction because of his relationship with you. And I pray for these dear brothers and sisters who are down here at the altar today, God, people who are serving you in the for-profit business world that is Babylon. God, I pray that you would strengthen them as they leave this place to go into their places of work and see that it is a shadow mission. It's a shadow mission, God, because their primary mission is to love and honor you. And when they do that, their work will be blessed. God, there are some folks down here today who are thinking, I can't stand my job, and all I want is something else. And God, I pray that you would give them a sense of your calling, that it is a vocation. You have put them there for this season for a purpose, and it's a higher purpose than what they might see. Encourage them, sustain them in the difficulties of a work that is going through the effects of the curse. God, there are others down here who are killing it at their work, but are not giving the honor to you. And I pray that you would convict them as they go to work tomorrow. I pray that you would fill them with your spirit in such a way that they would recognize everything they have comes from you. And their job is to honor and glorify you in their work, not themselves. We thank you that you created work, God, and that we find Despite the effects of the fall, we find fulfillment and satisfaction in work. And I pray that that would be the case for all of these folks down here today. God, we love you. We want to serve you. I pray that they would feel a divine commission to go into their place of work and represent you. We ask all, all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. You are sent.